นโมตัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสังฆ์ I thought this evening I could perhaps usefully talk about how we might make the effort that means we keep our Spiritual practice alive. We start off in our quest, and we're inspired in our search for relevance, for truth, and we have energy and enthusiasm, aspiration, and maybe we find something. In our case, we all find the Buddha's teachings, and this gives us an orientation. This gives us a direction in our lives, and it feels good. We study the texts, we listen to the teachings, and maybe we do some practice, and and hopefully we start to experience some benefit for ourselves. And this direct experience then uh, confirms what we were hoping was the case, and. Our faith is a little more grounded, and and we feel confident in what hopefully becomes a commitment to the Buddhist path of practice. However, even in uh, something as wonderful and as uh, training as thorough as we have in the Buddhist tradition, it's still uh, quite possible, quite easy, in fact, to become complacent and. Those concepts, those ideas that perhaps in the beginning inspired us and encouraged us and supported our deepening and our inquiry into what really matters in life. Those structures that initially supported us, we become used to them, and so we can end up, as I said. Becoming complacent, and and in fact, what we end up with is a set of beliefs, and uh, we know that uh, that's not what the Buddha encouraged. He didn't just offer us a set of beliefs that give a sort of consolatory message that appeases the anxiety which comes out of ignorance. It wasn't the Buddha's way. He he wanted us to. Cultivate the faculties, the spiritual faculties, until we could locate our own deepest hearts' longing for truth, and engaging in that, being motivated by that, uh, moving towards finding our own un- understanding or insight. But as I said, it's easy as we go along to end up with a set of beliefs, and and then it's very easy to start thinking, well, we belong to the best religion, and become a little conceited in that, and uh, then also with that comes a, 
the laziness and we lose the itch. And so that's, uh, that would, of course, be unfortunate. Uh, when we uh, get come across the life's uh, very real challenges, uh, loss, disappointment, old age, sickness, death, uh, we find that uh, our belief systems don't give us the support that we're looking for. So then we remember, oh, that's what I went into this for. And you might be familiar with the, uh, one of the discourses, one of the great discourses of the Buddha, the Mahasaropama Sutta, the Heartwood Sutta, where the Buddha describes this, uh, this fellow who sets out looking for heartwood, and the, the best part of the tree. And, but uh, initially he ends up just walking off with a few bunches of twigs and branches. And, and he says, well, of course, that's not it. That's not the heartwood. And uh, the bark, that's also not the heartwood. Uh, the sap, is not, the wood's not the heartwood. The softwood's not the heartwood. So the Buddha was encouraging with a simile to keep going deeper, to keep refreshing our aspiration. And so this is why we keep going back to uh, reading the teachings, to listening to the talks from those who've travelled the path further than we have. So, so last week I, uh, I would have normally been giving a talk on the quote by Ajahn Chah that features on this month's page of our calendar, and uh, but uh, it didn't happen last week, so it fits with this theme, and um, we could talk around that this evening. Uh, what Ajahn Chah offers there in this this short teaching is, I think, a very characteristic of Ajahn Chah, uh, his effort to remind us of what really matters, to remind us of the goal and not to settle for anything short of the goal, not to settle for feeling comfortable. You know, I was reflecting earlier about how intensely complicated, how complex our minds are and how confused our hearts can be. And, and on top of that, how many incredibly complex, confident teachers there are around. There's so many teachings and and so many paths to practice, and uh, there's enough to drive you bonkers. Uh, uh, how do we, how do we find a way through all this? Well, that's a good question. Uh, to uh, not just find something that's sort of good enough, and then feel contented that we got a little comfort. Yeah, comfort is good, uh, of course. Uh, Contentment is good, but most of the contentment that we uh, would be familiar with is, is a very relative sort of contentment. It's uh, appeasing uh, some of the uh, initial uh, anxieties and struggles that we have with life. And, but the Buddha wanted us to see beyond that. And so in this quote that Ajahn Chah offers and is presented uh, on the calendar page this month, with that nice picture of Ajahn Sumato climbing a mountain in India. And Ajahn Chah says, The Buddha teaches us to see above cause and beyond effect, above birth and beyond death, 
above happiness and beyond suffering. And so this above and beyond all the changing conditions of life, uh, above and beyond relativity uh, to that which is presumably, he's talking that which is changeless, or in the Pali word is asankata, dhamma, the realm, the dimension that is uncompounded, unmade. So the cause and effect, the born and dying and the happiness and the suffering, which I think most of, if we look at our experience, we will find fall somewhere in that spectrum. It's all changing. It's all, as far as Ajahn Chah was concerned, as far as the Buddha was concerned, that's not reliable. That's the twigs and branches. That's the bark. That's the sapwood. That's not the heartwood. But the heartwood that he was pointing to is the realization of that which is unchanging or unconditioned, unmade. And now this this uh, this concept that there is the unmade, the uncompounded, the unconditioned, this concept really runs counter to pretty well everything that we're taught. Pretty well all of our experience. Pretty much everything in the world. Even a lot of what's taught in religion is about becoming happy or about holding on to a belief system. But uh, what Ajahn Chah is talking about or what he's here he's commenting on the Buddha's teachings is the Buddha teaches us to see above and beyond that which is changing to the changeless uh, asankara dhamma now this concept is, is radical and, and challenging and it can it can help us if we want to remain committed to that which we start out in practice with. As I said, we start out in practice with an aspiration for finding true meaning, true relevance, truth. But as we move along, we can settle for just becoming comfortable. We can settle for becoming good. In the Mahasarupama Sutta, the Buddha specifically talks about this. He says we're not talking about just becoming virtuous. Well, it's hard to be virtuous. I mean, just to achieve virtuousness is already pretty good you know, for a lot of us. We start off you know, a bit all over the place and just to get some sort of order in our life and some sort of contentment and, and commitment to integrity is already quite an achievement. Yeah. But to have the concept that the goal is beyond that, we're not just becoming a good person. We're not just becoming a spiritual person. Now, good people and spiritual people uh, can be very nice company and uh, certainly better than uh, you know, those lacking goodness, lacking integrity. Mm-hmm. So we're not uh, saying it's not relevant. It's just not the goal. 
And with the force of commitment that we pick up from the world we live in, it would be understandable if we thought that goodness was good enough. Well, conceptual understanding was good enough. So certainly the way we're all educated, you know, we, 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 we invest a huge amount of value on conceptual understanding. And so if we've got a, a bunch of good ideas that solve our intellectual problems, we can feel you know, pretty pleased about that, very pleased about that. But when it comes to not getting our own way, when it comes to being frustrated and disappointed by life, those good ideas are not enough. So the Buddha didn't want us to make a mistake of just uh, settling for um, clarity of conceptual understanding, uh, the good feeling that comes with living a life of integrity. He wanted us to keep going, to keep digging deeper. He didn't want us to just have an all-rounded, integrated, lovely personality. Something that the world uh, worships. And the world holds up personality. Personality devotion, or narcissism, is the global religion. Uh, it's all about me. And it's easy to buy into that. Um, if we don't have a teaching which encourages us to look beyond it. There is the conditioning. There is the personality. We all have a certain sort of personalities and, and hopefully are reasonably integrated and so we don't struggle and suffer too much. But no matter how integrated and, and polished and attractive or agreeable our personality might be, we're going to lose it. And, and somebody's not going to like it. And so it is going to let us down. As you get older, your memory starts to go and, and you can't remember who you are anymore and then people stop inviting you around for dinner and nobody wants you anymore and your personality is not worth anything. Yeah, personality is certainly not a safe refuge. Uh, Ajahn Sumato used to talk often about this and uh, in fact it came up recently in a conversation. We, were, we had a uh, lake work day on Saturday down the lake there and, and uh, try cutting the grass in the, in the, in the uh, what we call the aspen grove, which was planted um, with uh, sponsorship from people who made donations when Ajahn Sumedha was last here. Uh, in the middle of the aspen grove is an empty circle. There's a very quite densely planted grove down there of, of beautiful aspen trees and and then there's a nice, gentle, curving pathway going into the centre of it, and there's this empty circle there. And I was explaining that this is our this is our our offering of respect and gratitude to our teacher Ajahn Sumato. His great offering to our community, as he said many times, was not his personality. He used to speak uh, uh, regularly about how. Um, how limited his personality was and, and how disagreeable and disappointing and frustrating his personality was and certainly was not a safe refuge for him or anybody else. Some people did used to think that his personality was a refuge and then when they came to see other aspects of his personality which they didn't like, they, they didn't have anywhere to turn because they'd been looking at the wrong thing. 
Or like that uh, story in the time of the Buddha, where apparently the Buddha was a, a rivetingly good-looking, handsome fellow, and this young monk was just sitting there staring at him, and the Buddha uh, castigated him, saying, you're looking at the wrong thing. You know, the form of the Buddha is not it. Uh, beautiful as it may well have been, uh, the form is not it. The eloquence of the teachings is not it. The sophistication of the understanding of the teachings is not it. But that state of being, that realization that the Buddha referred to as the unconditioned, unmade, the asankada, dhamma, that's it. That's the goal. And so even though the world might be promoting praise and success and happiness and long life and, and a polished personality, we're fortunate to have this instruction, this teaching from the Buddha and the great teachers which encourage us to think again. All of these conditions arise and cease. They're born and they die. Success is the opposite of failure. Happiness is the opposite of unhappiness. Uh, Long life is the opposite of a short life. Uh, Health will deteriorate. Uh, All of these conditions come and go, and there's nothing wrong with them, but the Buddha said that thankfully that's not all there is. Uh, And what he pointed towards is not a thing. If it's a thing, then it must have been born and must die. And that's why he used this concept this useful concept, the unconditioned or unmade reality, which he said can be realized. So this is one way of keeping our practice fresh and alive, uh, to check to see that we are holding rightly the right concepts. We can, hide the ro- we can hold the right concepts wrongly. We could just believe in the asankara dhamma. We could believe in the unconditioned. And we could get into intellectual debates with, with people who didn't believe in it. And we could argue about it. And that's missing the point. Yeah. So we could hold the right concepts wrongly. Or we could hold the wrong concepts rightly, presumably. Yeah. You know, we could have a, a careful, respectful, gentle holding of a view which doesn't accord with reality. But uh, what the Buddha gave us is a clear concept, uh, in Pali, Pariyati Dhamma, the level of conceptual understanding that we study and we, we train ourselves, we, we train our thinking you know, so that our thinking goes in the right direction. Mm. And this can then support us as we deepen in our practice. Now, another um, useful tool for keeping practice alive, so we can have concepts, helpful concepts, and, and learn how to hold them rightly, and also the use of um, the, the, the function of contrast is very important, contrasting dimensions to practice. Not something that necessarily we would immediately think of. Uh, sometimes uh, coming from a place of 
of confusion and disorientation and we learn a little meditation technique and do some exercises and and discover some peaceful state of mind that we've never experienced before and we can then assume we just need more of that because it feels so organic, so appropriate when the heart and mind experience some sense of balance and ease. And yet the reality is if we approach that state of mind with this uh, willful uh, desire to have more, we can actually spoil it. Whereas what might be a more useful approach to practice in general, and specifically with regards to peaceful states of mind, is to learn how to cultivate them and then to return out of them. Now, when people uh, have been on retreat and uh, experienced some deepening and some ease and a sense of expanded awareness, open-heartedness and well-being, and then as conditions change and they start talking again and moving around and and then they leave the retreat environment and uh, keeping the company of those who don't share the same values, same aspirations and and then the sensory stimulus and the noises and the sights and the smells of the world stir the mind up. And that's a really helpful part of the retreat. Uh, it would be unfortunate, it is unfortunate when we've been on retreat and then as we're coming out of retreat and we experience this bombardment of the senses and then the heart starts to contract, the field of awareness starts to shrink, that if we then assume that something's going wrong. It doesn't have to be that something's going wrong. If we judge it and say that it's going wrong, well then it's wrong. But we don't have to judge it and we don't have to say it's going wrong. We can learn from it. We say, oh, this is what happens when the senses are stimulated. It's like this. If we have really unshakable realisation, well then that contraction, that shrinking doesn't take place. It doesn't have to happen. The teachers who realise the goal have spoken about the, uh, the, the state of unintimidation not being intimidated by the world, can live in the world, can move through the world, but are not disturbed by the world. But for us, we still get disturbed by the world, but we can learn from that. And so if we have what is perhaps characterised as an agility in our practice, to move in and out of contrasting experiences, that can sometimes be more useful than just going in the same direction, just going from this retreat to this retreat to this retreat. You know, we have a, a fellow who comes to visit here sometimes from, from London and um, he was explaining to me how he, uh, he was in this for several years. He was a retreat junkie and he just lived from one retreat to the other and the, the bit in between retreat, was not that wasn't the real thing. Uh, he would end up going off drinking and, and doing things and then 
uh, rush to book himself on another retreat and look forward to it and then go on retreat and do this thing and get all spiritual and get peaceful and then come off retreat. And, and then one retreat, at the end of it, I, uh, I think it would have been because the teacher was, was discussing the five precepts, if I remember rightly, and how the five precepts can be a protection. As you leave retreat, they help define the parameters of our conduct of body and speech and protect the goodness that has been cultivated on retreat. Anyway, what happened, whatever happened, he got it. Something shifted, and he decided to take the five precepts and keep them. He stopped drinking. And then his practice included everything. He came out of the addiction to being a retreat junkie, and everything became practice. And this wasn't just one occasion. I've seen him. He's been here several times, and we've talked about it, and it still holds true then. And actually, not just he's benefiting himself, but also he finds a good number of people come up to him at parties and, and social gatherings and situations where uh, most people are drinking and, uh, and try and get some hints from him how he manages to stay sober and sane and, and still keep a very good sense of humour. And so uh, the one way of, of expanding the benefits of practice is to find out what is it that helps us feel safe. What helps us feel safe? And certainly drinking doesn't make us feel safe. But as we go along, we investigate, we start to see, I want to keep the precepts because I want to keep the precepts. I can see the benefit of it for myself. And, and so once we have that sense of safety, as a sense of trust that comes with the commitment to integrity, then we have this agility, as I was saying before. We can go in and out of contrasting environments. And you can learn. And you learn from being a thoroughly chaotic situation. The mind doesn't have to define a chaotic, noisy, disagreeable situation as wrong. You can learn from being depressed. You can learn from being sick. You know, again, to quote Ajahn Chah, when he was addressing some of the monks who were complaining and said, oh, I couldn't practice much this year because I had malaria fever. And he said, well, if you can't practice when you're sick, you can't practice when you're healthy. Yeah. Practice is not limited to being healthy or sick yeah. or feeling strong and capable or feeling weak and depleted. Yeah. Practice is something more than that. And so if we orient our lives, if we orient our spiritual lives towards cultivation of this, then we can hopefully start to feel the benefits for ourselves. So the contrasting environments we find ourselves in can teach us. And we don't have to judge them. This is a spiritual situation. Uh, I'm on retreat or I'm in the temple or I'm meditating. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Mindfulness is what? Watchfulness is what defines whether the situation is helpful or not. Yeah. And mindfulness, you need to understand, is not controlling. Uh, this movement of mindfulness that's so popular now often is interpreted, I hear it over and over again, as being a form of control. And if uh, practitioners of mindfulness don't receive adequate guidance and instruction, then the deluded ego 
usurps the good effort that is being made and starts using this so-called mindfulness technique as just an extension of its control freakery, uh, uh, manipulating conditions and make them more agreeable. You know, mindfulness, the image the Buddha gave for mindfulness, he said, it's like the, the, um, the watchman at the gate, at the city gate, you know, the gatekeeper watching the coming in and the going out. That watchfulness, the helpful image, that's mindfulness. Yes, of course, there's a place for control and learning how to make right effort, learning how to make right concentration. And you know, There is a place for control, but... Mindfulness, the faculty of mindfulness, is what determines whether practice is balanced or not and defines whether we're going to learn and benefit from situations or not. So if we have good quality mindfulness, then contrasting environments are a great, great environment. Children need contrast for their intelligence to grow. If children are not subjected to contrasting experiences, sadly there's some evidence of this, deprived and desperately sad cases of orphans just being locked in a crib without any stimulus, their intelligence doesn't develop. The intelligence of a little being is enhanced by contrasting experiences, textures and shapes and colours and environments and food. We, we, have, uh, we have some very good cooks in this monastery who know how to prepare very interesting contrasting flavours in food. Sometimes you get a bit carried away and I encourage them to kind of tone it down a bit. Uh, but food without contrast is really boring. Photographs, a painting without contrast doesn't have any depth. A few weeks ago I, I was travelling down south and uh, with a friend and and uh, went to visit some of our monasteries and it was quite striking, the contrast of being on the motorway in the car and, and stopping, at, stopping at the service station, stopping for a cup of coffee and then, uh, and then spending time again in the monastery there. The first stop after leaving Harnham was with some friends uh, in London and Twickenham. And uh, as you probably know, Twickenham is where that uh, wonderful game rugby is played. And it was a Sunday and the game had just finished and the, uh, the teams were coming out. And what an interesting contrast that was to the monastery. Now, if you have awareness, if you have mindfulness, well-developed, non-judgmental watchfulness, you can just feel how that feels, or after spending some time uh, out of the monastery, uh, travelling in Wales and Newport and various places, and then going to visit our good friends in Chittis Monastery. And the experience actually was, like, oh, what a relief. <laughs> what a relief, what a wonderful place. But if you're not careful, you can say, oh, well, this is the place I should be. I should just stay here all the time or I should stay in Harnham all the time. But actually, getting out and coming back in again, you learn something. Yeah. So in our daily life experience and also in our formal practice, we don't want to get stuck on, I just need more peacefulness. 
that's a view that doesn't accord with the teachings. What we need probably is more agility and more flexibility. Certainly, always could use more mindfulness, more watchfulness. But even in the cultivation of mindfulness, of watchfulness, let's be careful that we don't just use it as another tool to make ourselves comfortable. It's practice, as as Ajahn Chah was saying, as as of course the, the Buddha taught us, it's not about becoming comfortable, but about realizing that wisdom which protects the heart from getting lost. When there's true understanding, when there's true wisdom, when there's unshakable compassion, then there's no possibility for the heart to be intimidated by impulses of greed, impulses of aversion, impulses of delusion. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamangamakataya sadhu karam dadamase sadhu